Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia, and we are recording from Hudson Yards. We're in our studios here, so it's a big deal in New York today. So let's talk about our cases. Our first case this week will be about a cheerleading instructor and a mother of three who was brutally murdered by her boyfriend, say police. Now, that same boyfriend recently posted a video tribute about how much he loved her. So what happened? But first, who murders out of curiosity? Can a true crime fan who is obsessed with true crime and murder actually become a killer because of it? Police in Korea say that a woman researched, plotted, and carried out a murder on a stranger just to see how it feels. The woman posed as a teenager in need of a tutor, went to the woman's house, and killed her. We don't know what kind of crime shows that she was watching, but her methods were sloppy, making it possible to arrest her quickly. We're recording this on Wednesday, November 29th of 2023. And our guest today is Jana Monroe, a distinguished FBI investigator specializing in the psychological profiling of serial killers. Jana has analyzed more than 850 homicide cases in her career. She's the author of a new book, a memoir, Hearts of Darkness, Serial Killers, the Behavioral Science Unit, and My Life as a Woman in the FBI, which is available now. Jana, welcome to the program. We're so excited to have you. Oh, Anna, thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this. Oh, we are really, really honored to have you. Your background is amazing. The fact that really you were the only woman in that unit at Quantico, is that possible? Well, it was at the time, yes. I yeah. had uh, 11 colleagues that were male and, and me. <laughs> well, I am so glad the times are changing. So glad. I can't wait to hear your thoughts on our two cases. I want to let everyone know that we will be talking more about Jana's career and her book um, a little later in the episode, but we're going to get to our cases right now. Our first one is out of Busan, South Korea. And I mean, of all the motives in the world, this one has to be one of the weirdest that we have covered because we're basically talking about this reclusive true crime fan who murders a stranger out of sheer curiosity. Jana, do people just wake up one day and say, you know what, I'm going to kill? Or is this something where it's it's been 
bubbling for a while and maybe they've killed before. I'm always curious about that first kill. A absolutely. And you say you use the word one of the weirdest. It is for many reasons. And one, she's a female. You just do not see women who kill like this uh, very, very often at all. And then to look at the overkill a hundred times, stabbed over a hundred times. And that's one of these up close and personal killings, a stabbing, unlike a shooting, a bombing, an arsonist, where you're detached from it. You don't have to be even that close. But to answer your question more specifically, no, you don't just wake up one day and spontaneously decide you're going to commit this grisly, heinous crime. I think the fact that she had been living, she has an obsessive personality, but she had been living such an active fantasy life and doing all this research, so much premeditation. She was putting herself in that uh, so that she could research it to experience it. She wanted to experience what it was like to kill someone brutally. And that for me is very hard to accept because most people don't want to know what that feeling is like. So what is it about her that she needed to feel something really so disgusting and horrific? Well, in, in my experience, I would say that on the spectrum, um, she is sociopathic, meaning she doesn't experience the feelings that we do typically on that spectrum of normal, right? She doesn't yeah. experience remorse, love, happiness, all of those emotional gamut. So when she sees some of these things, it was, gee, I wonder what that is like. She has more of a curiosity than a sensory uh, response to something. So when she reads about it, she saw that this was going on. She wanted to be able to feel it, to sense it. Also, I think what's disturbing for so many of us who report on crime is this idea that someone could be so obsessed with the topic and the genre to the point of what she did. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think, again, when you use the word weird, I'm just more uh, interested in this because she's a female and at that age and so up close and personal. But you have people, fortunately, in the big population, population, not, not as many as, as one would think, but um, that are so violent with that because they look at it a totally different way than, than we or normal people would. And for my, my work in the past, that was my original challenge is trying to look at something the way they did and not judging by my standards. Oh, Jenna, that is key. Um, that really is it. And I think that's where our disconnect is as people who study and research crimes is we can't, we're not capable of getting into their heads to see it their way. But if you can, from their perspective, everything makes sense. Oh, absolutely. And that was one of the things I had to really um, learn and be very dedicated um, at my, my behavior, my responses, more stoic, if you will, because I think most of us, again, I'm just going to use the word normal because there's a big spectrum of normal. But when you look at some of these gruesome, grisly crimes, you, you know, you react in horror. They're compelling and repulsive at the same time. The compelling part is because we can't imagine doing that or the number one question, which is why would someone do that? Yes. Our killer here, the convicted killer, is 23-year-old Yu Jung Jung, and she's been convicted of murder and sentenced to life for killing a 26-year-old university student who was earning extra money working as a tutor. The name of the victim has not been released in Korea. Authorities have the discretion 
to not make the victim's name public. I find that very interesting. Occasionally that happens here, but for the most part, it becomes part of the legal record. Now, she was described as a recluse, unemployed, living with her grandfather, father, described as a, a loner who didn't attend university, wasn't interested in having a job, and for the last five years had self-isolated and that she plotted this murder for three months. Jana, when you hear the description of her life and how she lived it, does that fit into a pattern that you've seen before? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that the key word on that would be isolated. And it appears from what uh, little I do know about the case, she felt uh, rejected. She felt unsuccessful. She felt pity party, you know, felt sorry for herself and did not have any connections with people. And all of that is very typical for someone then who starts leading a fantasy life, creating your own life, not with other people, but with fictitious ones. She researched how to choose a victim, who to kill, how to kill them, and then how to dispose of the body. But she was sloppy, as I said, because she didn't consider things like surveillance cameras and witnesses like the taxi driver who took her to a remote location to dump the corpse. Of course, the cab driver just knew that there was a woman who was acting strangely in his cab who asked to go to this remote area near the river, and she had a suitcase, but he saw that it was a bloody suitcase. You know, it is a little weird to take your wheelie and, you know, go into the bushes. So clearly, oh. right? Yeah, a absolutely. I think, and that's that would be one of the indicators that this was maybe she was a novice at this, okay, one of her first times. What it appears is she was so obsessed with the selection of a victim, right? She'd done all this research about who would, who would the victim be, but she didn't do what some of the other, and I, this term sounds weird, more successful uh, yeah. killers or serial killers did, which was considered the whole process. Like, where are you going to dispose of the body? And is it going to be someplace it's going to have to be where you don't have a lot of people around? You don't want to have witnesses. It's going to be either a very remote place or someplace where it's at night. I mean, there's many factors to consider. And she was extremely sloppy with her cleanup. Very much so. She sought out a woman who lived alone. She knew that part was important. And according to detectives, she got onto this tutoring app and she reached out to 54 people before she finally settled on this 26-year-old woman. What frightens me is, my God, 54 people who could have been victims. Absolutely. And I would what I would love to know about this is how she selected the one. Like you said, that's a lot a lot of potential victims. Um, yeah, and I think if my name had been on that victim list, that would have certainly given me uh, the, the goosebumps. Uh, and I'd have been very happy that I was not worthy for somehow whatever the selection criteria was on her yeah, part. This is, right, this is a list you don't want to make. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So when Yu Jung communicated with this tutor, she was posing as the mother of a child who needed some help with English lessons. So she begins... The, the process posing as the mother. But when Yu Jung showed up on May 26 to this tutor's apartment, she was now pretending to be the student. She took on a different role. She bought a school uniform online and police say that she looked really young in the school uniform and they believe that she could have even passed for a middle schooler. Do you find anything of interest here in the roles 
that she is playing in the commission of this crime. Absolutely. Again, looking at the premeditation part of it, she knows what she looks like and buying a uniform that would make her look younger in that part. She put so much effort and thought into the the part of the actual selection of it, being able to, to do the killing. Um, and I think she actually got, well, you could call it sloppy too, but arrogant about the fact, well, I look young. I don't think anybody's going to suspect me. And because of that, maybe that self-introspection, um, that's why she didn't think about some of the other things. It's like, who's going to suspect me? Well, she I don't, showed I don't up. Think she thought it through. No, no, I don't think she thought it through either. Um, because she shows up at the tutor's home, posing as the student, and police say that she brought the murder weapon with her, a knife. She stabbed the teacher more than a hundred times, and as you said, that tells you a lot. It, it was overkill in the sense the teacher would have, what I was trying to figure out as I was reading this, Jana, was did it take a hundred times because she was really bad at it and couldn't kill the teacher? Or did she kill the teacher and then the other, other stab wounds were part of her thrill? I would say the latter. And the reason I say that, and again, I don't know, like if there were stab wounds to the hilt, the hilt of a knife, that shows a lot of anger. And they sh that shows that someone's experienced with a knife. The reason I say the latter, because what little I read about it, it was post-mortem, meaning after death. So um, she would have realized, I would have thought that she was already in the throes of dying or dead at this time, but she just kept stabbing. And to me, that was more the thrill not to ensure that she was actually dead. That was a part of the fantasy that she was living ahead of time and wanted to know like what it felt like. I don't know um, if she would have had an adrenaline rush like people who with a conscience do. I mean, obviously she knew what she was doing was wrong or she wouldn't have gone to all that pretense. But I think maybe she did start feeling um, a thrill for lack of a better word. So now with the teacher dead in the teacher's apartment, Yu Jung took off her bloody school uniform and then she put on clean clothes that belong to the teacher. This is the part where I think it's things are not planned well. And this is really where she started leaving the clues that made it possible for police to zero in on her uh, rather quickly after discovering the body in the suitcase by the river. She went to a store and she bought bleach and trash bags. But then, okay, so that's one trip, gets those back to the apartment, the crime scene. Then she goes back to her own home to grab a suitcase to put the body in. And there are all these surveillance videos and photos of her walking with the suitcase. So, I mean, who does that? Who leaves a body, goes and gets the suitcase, brings that back? What What do you make of that? Well, I make of it that she is not an experienced killer. She's not sophisticated at doing this. I would say it was the first time. And I think it also goes back to that, that arrogance or aloofness. Um, and I don't think she also realized how bloody the crime scene was going to be. When you stab someone, and depending on where the stabs are, when you hit uh, an artery, arterial spurt, I mean, I don't want to get too graphic here, but mm -hmm. um, there, there's going to be a lot of blood. And I, I think she underestimated that in addition to uh, the removal of the body. So she was thinking of it as she was doing it, not not ahead of time. Police say that she severed the tutor's fingers, cut them off, 
because she thought this would make identifying the teacher more difficult or impossible. Yeah. She's watching old movies or something when you look at <laughs> for the finger out of print. date. <laughs> yeah, I was just gonna say uh, outdated content. Uh, perhaps she doesn't realize about DNA and um, many, many other things. I that was almost well, if it weren't so psychotic and and sick, it was almost laughable that that was her attempt um, of making not identifying her victim. Yeah, it it really does show um, how little she really did know. So she begins to chop up the body. Um, but this is very difficult work. I've been told it is not easy to sever limbs. Yeah. It, it's a lot of work, physical, physical and intense. And so here she is trying to do that. And she manages to fit some of the body in the suitcase. But it's not a giant suitcase. And so she leaves some of the remains in the apartment. She takes the the other she puts in this suitcase which is also bloody and messy she gets in a cab you know and who who does that who gets out of a cab and walks in the bushes with a suitcase yeah somebody that doesn't realize what they're doing that other people see them and that's going to be considered you know if you look at the the mantra that a lot of policing communities have see something say something that yeah. that, that doesn't apply to them that uh, that is kind of a universal thing that if you know somebody who's an upstanding citizen or just normal and they see that they're, they're going to say something to somebody anymore. That's more the inclination than it used to be. And to me, again, that speaks to her not having done this, not realizing that you have witnesses around people are looking uh, at you and her focusing so intently um, on the crime itself, the thrill that she was going to get uh, and that aspect of it and, and kind of not looking at the rest of it. I can make that almost analogous to, to some people who spend a lot of time like, you know, on their face and getting all made up and whatnot, and then not the rest of them. It's like, but no, we can see the whole, the whole person. I think she was hyper-focused on the victim selection and the thrills that she wanted to, to get from this. And it was that cab driver that called police saying, you know, this is very strange. She's acting weirdly. That suitcase looked bloody. Police go to the location given to them by the cab driver. They find the suitcase. They find the remains of a human being. So really within hours, police were able to identify Yu Jung. And on May 27th, police arrested her at her grandfather's apartment. She was later indicted on charges of murder and the desecration and abandonment of a corpse. Now, when she was first questioned about this, she denied everything. She's like, no, 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 this, there's, it wasn't me. Then she shifted and said, well, maybe I disposed of the victim, but I didn't kill the victim. And then finally in the questioning, that's when she finally confesses that she did this out of curiosity, claiming that her fascination with true crime spurred the killing. And she told the officers, quote, her curiosity was piqued from reading novels and watching TV programs on murder. You know, that's what she says. And out of the, the many opportunities I've had to conduct interviews with serial killers or even those with a single a single homicide with pathology such as this one, it was always interesting how um, the majority of them would mitigate something 
and try to defer that where, you know, I saw pornography at an early age, or I watched a lot of these. So that's what drove me to do that. When we know there are millions of people who watch these things or have been involved in this and that they don't become prolific serial killers or a, a serial, I mean, or a killer like this. Um, I believe that that is uh, her way of just trying to explain what she did, because I don't think she really has um, an explanation for it. That the curiosity is probably really true for her. She wanted to see what it was like. And that's what we can't relate to, thank goodness. Yes, that's that's the disconnect for us. Right. So they conducted some psychological testing there from what I was reading. And and I, I really don't understand this. And they may have a, a different approach than we may hear in the United States or the FBI. But um, they said that... From my understanding that um, they have an index on which they work off to try and figure out what her um, psychopathic traits would be and that generally she was considered a psychopath. Uh, one test clearly put her over the range. Another test was perhaps not as strong on the numeric value. But do these tests mean anything from your perspective? Oh, that is a great question. And I'm smiling and I thank you because these are just indicators. Like so many things, the behavioral science unit in the FBI, they, a, a judge, rightly so, made us change that name to behavioral analysis unit, said it's not a science. All of these things are tools. So those numbers by which they're um, interviewing her and, and attaching that numerical to her, it is just an indicator. And it's the same thing, I believe, with IQ and EQ tests. Um, you can have, it depends on who administers them. You look at the question, you look at ethnicity, you look, there's so many variables that enter into the results of the test that I think uh, far too much credence is put into it. But I think in her case specifically, the, the numbers were fairly close. I think they are pretty sure that she definitely fits into their category of a psychopath or sociopath. One of the experts who testified during the trial said that um, she needed someone to express, and I'm, I'm quoting here, the chronic anger she has carried since childhood due to her impoverished upbringing, conflicts with family, and failure to get a university degree or find a job. I, that just sounds like excuses to me. It sounds like excuses to me too. And the other thing that we can make this analogous to, which to me, unfortunately, in the United States, we have what I refer to as an epidemic of active shooter. If you take a look into the motivations and the intent of the active shooters, you see a lot of that same type of thing, which I still think is, is an excuse. You know, it's not, not a reason for it, but um, the ones who live will say, you know, I, I didn't have a good upbringing. My parents are horrible. Um, I couldn't get into the schools. I've been rejected all the time. So their rejection, their unhappiness, their whatever they feel is all negative association. They then take their frustration out and think it's, it's okay. It's valid to do that by harming others. And I think her rationale for that fits into that similar category. That's one of the reasons I do like to cover on this program Killers who have privilege, access, good education, you know, what's considered normal or stable family life because, 
you know, we think that it's only this type of a killer, maybe a killer who didn't, you know, have all the support and the love and, and the structure. But when you have people who have everything and still make the same bad decisions to murder, to solve a problem, I think that says more about it as opposed to, um, you know, how they say whether it's nature or nurture. Nature, I, nurture, I, right. Right, yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And that um, that conversation, we could probably go on with for hours, nature and nurture, yeah. and, and people have um, different perspectives. I think it's a bit of both. But you're so correct when you see these people that um, do. They have everything by our standards, right? And they still commit their, or have the same kind of behavior. So it's a whole different thing. I do exclude from that, though, children who were severely abused because I do believe that that is a different factor, whether the child had, you know, a, a wealthy family and upbringing or not, that part of it is a completely different aspect. I, I remove that from the conversation in the sense when I do the comparison about, you know, I think a lot of excuses are out there. And the reality is, I, I guess I realize this is not a technical term. It is not a legal term. It is not a psychological term, but I do believe in evil. I do believe in evil. Yes, absolutely. And you know, okay, it might not be a psychological term, but I, I totally believe in evil, right? And that gets back to the the nature part of it. And I, I think that is a way of explaining some of this. It's just true evil. And that makes it um, difficult to articulate for people who don't believe that there is evil because it goes back to your little situational awareness and that little voice that tells you certain things um, and you don't know how to articulate, but it's good to listen to it. It's that same thing with evil. Yeah. Yeah. Well, part of her defense, Yu Jung claimed she said that she was out of her mind at the time of the killing. Well, whatever that means, I mean, I suppose that's really possible. You were certainly not thinking clearly at the very least. And she said because of that, she wanted a more lenient sentence. However, um, the court disagreed. The judge disagreed, wanted her to have the harshest of punishments here. So Yu Jung was sentenced to life in prison on November 24th of this year. And as part of her sentence, this is the part I don't get. The judge ruled that Yu Jung must wear a location tracking device for 30 years. Why does she need a device if she is in um, a prison? Thank you. That that jumped out at me. I'm like going, okay, she's in prison. And unless I have not been to a prison uh, in, in Korea, but uh, unless they are given free reign to walk around certain areas, that makes no sense at all. Because that's what you do typically when someone is either in, in our country, anyway, on pro, uh, parole or probation, and they have that monitoring so that they know whether they can either revoke probation if they're doing something or going somewhere where they're not supposed to. And the same thing is their terms of release for parole. But if you're incarcerated, there's no need for that. Jenna. Do you believe that the notoriety that this woman has received, because this was a huge case in South Korea, and, and it also was an international case, and she's photographed, and people are listening to her, and she's testifying, and she's the center of attention, do you believe that part of that continues to feed into this, and that there's a part of her that that has enjoyed and has what it is that she wanted from this? Absolutely. I 
And that's one of the things that has frustrated me for years is that publicity, that notoriety, because that's one of the things they're looking for. And I'll, he'll go unnamed. I think most people know who John Lennon was, but his killer, that was one of the, the reasons that he gave is he wanted, he, nobody knew him. He was a nobody, Mr. Cellophane. He wanted to be known for, uh, with his name out there, for the man who killed John Lennon. And that was one of the few times, and I so think the media, they didn't put that out there. But in this case, right, they have not released the name of the victim. But this is where I, I really have compassion for the victims who can't speak, right? And then to your point, you have the offender out there getting publicity and notoriety, whether it's good or bad. Again, she's not on the normal spectrum. So for her, I believe any attention is, is great and something that she wants. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Our next case is out of Jasper, Texas, where a cheerleading coach and mother of three has been murdered. Rosalind Lewis, who's 24, suffered blunt force trauma before her body was discovered last week. Police have since arrested her boyfriend, 23-year-old William Christian Thomas. Rosalind was affectionately, affectionately called Ruru by her friends and her family. She was known in the community as a great cheer instructor. According to her family, like every girl who took Rosalind's private lessons became a cheerleader at Jasper High School, which is a very big deal in this community. And so she was truly successful in her world. And when she was a senior in high school, she and her mom co-founded this cheerleading group. So I think that says a lot about how disciplined this young woman was. She um, had three little babies, ages two, three, and five. And so now they are without a mother. Now, we don't know a lot of the details of this case. I always say this, you know, some jurisdictions and prosecutors and departments provide more details, others provide less. It's really up to the jurisdiction and I know sometimes those of you listening and watching get very frustrated if we cover a case where we don't have a lot of details. But for me, 
I don't think it's okay to look away from a case. We have got to cover these cases about people being killed. And if we don't know a lot, then we need to we need to talk about what we do know, but we need to honor the victims here. So here is a very young woman with three children who was loved in her community and she's been murdered. We don't know all the answers, but I think we need to honor her life. And so I don't shy away from those cases. And the reason I'm saying this is because a few podcasts ago, some of you got very frustrated, very frustrated with me and one of the cases we covered saying, well, until you know enough, then you know, don't include it in the podcast. So I just wanted to say why we do, that we don't shy away from a case that we don't know at all that that's not the standard for choosing what we're going to talk about. These are all human lives. Absolutely. I, I think, and that's one of the things, Anna, that um, we'll get into and not to plug it, but that's who I wrote for and dedicated my book to is the all too many victims of violent crime and the loved ones who grieve their loss. As, as you well know, uh, it doesn't impact uh, or affect just one person when someone is killed. It, there's family and, and, and friends, a lot of people, people who look up, look up to them. Like this woman had so much influence and impact, positive influence and impact on young women. So th there are many, many people grieving her loss. Yes, yes. All the families of all the little girls whose lives that she impacted in a positive way. You know, we need to take a moment and talk about these wonderful humans on this planet. Now, Thomas Williams, who's been charged with the murder, he had been dating Rosalind since October of 2022. So just a little over a year. William had publicly professed his love for Rosalind on social media. Now, some believed it was too much. Others believed that he was showing off, that Rosalind was such a catch, and indeed she was, but maybe he was treating her more like a possession, a prize, and something, right, to be um, flaunted as opposed to be just loved. I don't know, but this is an issue here that 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 I think is going to be part of it. Think about it. So in June, he wrote, this would have been about nearing their anniversary um, or right before his anniversary. And he wrote, quote, couldn't get her out of my mind if I tried my obsession. Yeah. And, and that word obsession, I think yes. his intent was for a good one, right? Just see how much I love. I'm professing my love for you publicly. I agree with you. When you look at a, a possession, I'll call it a trophy um, that he, for many reasons, but I think because like you said, she was a catch, she was highly thought of, um, his maybe insecurity, uh, on this is like, look, look who I have, look what I have. And it was more showing her off than just loving her for maybe who she was, what she was. We all have a different side to us intimately and personally. I'm sure when, you know, when she's at work and she's helping others and whatnot, that's her, her professional side, her outside. I don't mean two-faced, but you're more vulnerable when you're with your mate, your partner, whoever your loved one is, because then you're, you're home and you can let literally let your hair down and, and be yourself. Uh, to me, it appears that he he didn't think of her that way at all and and it was more um of a, that trophy or showing off aspect so then on october 3rd william shared a video that he made a video of the two of them and he captioned this my world and this would have been around the time that they were celebrating their one-year anniversary however now let us contrast william's public postings with Rosalind's public postings. Now, we don't know that she was talking about 
her boyfriend at this time, but here's what was going on where she felt it was enough to say something, right? So clearly something was on her mind. So a month later in November, Rosalind made several posts that may indicate that there was some trouble in this relationship. On November 1st, Rosalind shared an image of a posted note that read, the devil will attack you through people you think love you. That's that's very profound uh, in what she wrote on that. And again, unfortunately, many of the cases that I have worked, you see this type of uh, one-sided uh, and again, almost obsessive love affair. I wouldn't even call it like a love affair. It, what it sounded like definitely to me, she's at, ready to end the relationship and he's still going overboard. And what she's saying in her message, she was being revealing without naming names. And she is indicating that she's not happy with this. And this is, you know, not everything is what you see. Um, and, and she's definitely not happy with this relationship. Then three days before her death, she posted a graphic that read, nobody hides pain better than a mother that's trying to keep everyone and everything together. Right. Absolutely. Um, I believe she's referring to herself. She's trying to make it seem like if she doesn't want to worry the kids, her mother, or anybody that's close in her life, she's got her business going on. She's trying to make it work without bothering other people. But I don't think, well, I'm pretty sure she did not recognize at the time um, how determined he was to keep that relationship, that relationship that he was fantasizing about. Although they had been in a relationship, I think he saw it ending, but even the one that they were in was far more a fantasy on his part. It wasn't the reality. Mm-hmm. Very much so. Jasper police responded to a call at her apartment complex at 4 a.m. on November 18th. That's when they found the body of Rosalind Lewis. And she was pronounced dead at the scene. Blunt force trauma as the cause. Law and crime is reporting that according to police lieutenant G.W. Foster, quote, all we know is what he told us. Well, then that generally, you know, what a suspect says is very important and suggesting, suggesting this is what I'm reading here is that William may have confessed to the crime. G.W. Foster went on to say that William allegedly told the authorities that they got into an argument. He got mad and waited until she went to sleep and then struck her in the head with a blunt object. If that is true. What do you make of the sequence of events? Well, absolutely. Look at it. It's it, again, it's not as cowardly as uh, setting a fire or, or doing you know something far more remotely than this. But what it said to me, their argument was about her breaking up with him, her um, being honest and saying her feelings were not the same for him as apparently hers, uh, his was for her. And he didn't want to get into the con confrontation and have her fight back. So he cowardly waited until she was sleeping. But how brutal to bludgeon her to death. A, a person that it, it fits it's that adage. So many cases that you see uh, where you have an overly jealous male on that part. It's like, well, if I can't have her, no one else can either. Totally self-absorbed. Very much so. Rosalind's memorial service was held on November 25th. Her mother noted how much impact her daughter had on the area, writing on her daughter's GoFundMe page, quote, Rosalind will truly be missed and her legacy will live on forever with the love and the memories from her children, family, all the kids, 
on the squads, the teams, the friends, and the entire Jasper community. So when there is more on this case, we will update it and we will follow it like we do all of the cases here. Finally, we get a chance to really delve into so much of the work that you have done and your book, again, called Hearts of Darkness, Serial Killers, the Behavioral Science Unit, and My Life as a Woman in the FBI. Now, you call this a memoir. How is your approach in this book? Or maybe this is what I want to ask you. What did you need to say in this book? What I needed to say, and like I said previously, Anna, I I did I felt a need to write it. I could have written it years ago, but because um, of the victims, I had that so many victims that I um, came into contact with, and out of respect for them, I wanted to go ahead and write this because it gives them a little bit more of a voice on this. But um, what I also wanted to do, and I call it a memoir, because although it's focused on my time in the behavioral analysis unit. It's my entire life career-wise because my hope and intent was to encourage, maybe even inspire women and men, but um, who want to go to that next level and whatever it is they're pursuing. Um, I was not welcomed into my career. Nobody was, you know, bad or mean. It's it's the times, right? And not being accepting of things. You see that with diversity, equity, and inclusion now, kind of a, a fight that you need to have to have different ways of looking at things. And I just knew that um, I was able to be successful. It took a lot of work. I don't regret any of it. And I would like to encourage those who want to who want to do something also. How did you get into this unit, which is so competitive? Did it was it? Did you apply? Were you selected? How did that work? Um, yeah, you're right. It was very competitive. And I had gotten as much experience as I could. I had worked homicides as a police officer. When I got into the FBI, I worked with a unit while I was a street agent. Uh, I was able to refer cases to them from locals. And then when I found out about an opening, because they didn't even advertise it, um, I, I took time off to go and, and conduct the interview. And some of the some of my interview responses I do not recommend for others in, a, in an interview. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'd even said there were no women in the unit, no females. And so I said to my boss, um, I think a diversity of experience and I'm not just gender related, but all kinds of experiences really needed in this unit. And that's what I bring to the table. But why should we not say these things? These are like the elephants in the room, the obvious things that need to be stated. You know, we are such a diverse population and, and diversity in everything. And how can we possibly look at crimes and communities if we don't have a diversity of experience and perspectives? Oh, absolutely. I believe in that implicitly and so strongly. And again, not just diversity of gender, you know, yes. all, all the way optics, but this particular one, what I was referring to with my interview time, my um, boss had been kind of the, my boss later, my interviewer who became my boss. Um, he had done some things where he showed me some pictures and then he didn't ask me anything. And he was asking, um, he was just looking at me and said he wanted to make sure I didn't grimace or felt uncomfortable or would faint. And I said, well, why would I faint? And he said, well, a couple of other women we inter interviewed couldn't do this. And I said, well, I took the liberty of, of checking you out and you were um, a tennis instructor in the military before joining the FBI. I worked homicide cases and was a police officer. Why were you more experienced than I was to have this job? 
So <laughs> to his credit. I'm high-fiving you from yeah, across the country. Me anyway, <laughs> but I'm not recommending that. <laughs> it's, I think you can approach it a, a, a little differently. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. So let's talk about when you get into the unit, you're the first woman. How difficult is it for the others to share the work with you? Well, it was very difficult initially. Um, I don't like the word obnoxious. I never, I don't recommend that either, but I had to be aggressive even more so than assertive. And to me that there's a difference, but initially I had to be aggressive. And by that, I mean, um, the old expression, if uh, you know, I want a seat at the table. Well, they didn't give me a seat at the table. So I brought a folding chair. I would insert <laughs> myself. I knew what, you know, it's like so-and-so is going to have, you know, a consultation on this. I would just go knock on their door, say, I heard about this. Um, I would like to be included for the following reasons. And like I said, they were nice men, but they never had anybody do that before. And there was no reason for them to tell me no. So I did a lot of volunteering for things so that I could get that experience. And so that it'd be really very difficult for them to say no. And at what point do you believe that you were able to provide a level of insider expertise that finally got those in your group to look at you? Like what, do you remember the pivotal moment? Well, there are a couple of them, um, but one of them was a case that uh, there were three victims, of course, almost always female, and they were looking at photos. And I was, uh, I invited myself to, to this one and was asked to be quiet. I could sit at the, you know. Oh, no, you were not yeah. told to be quiet. Oh, yeah. And that's kind of the worst oh. thing you can tell me. <laughs> so anyway, but I was abiding. I was on my best behavior and I was abiding by that. And they're talking about this one aspect of it where there were demarcations under the breasts of all three victims, but they were symmetrical and they were talking. It could be this, it could be that, blah, blah, blah. So out of the clear blue, one of them says, why don't you know, Jana, what's your opinion? Oh, okay. So I get up, look a little more closely at the photos. And I said, oh, looks like underwire bras markings, like at the end of a day. And when it's kind of hot and whatnot, you That's have That's what I was thinking. I was thinking it's the bra. <laughs> yeah. See, I got credit for nothing. And I mean, it was like, to me, and I, I, I know most of my girlfriends would go, oh yeah, that's an underwire bra marking. And they'd never heard of that. Yeah. <laughs> that's nothing to do with the crime. It's yeah. just that it's hot and she's wearing a bra. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. She was from Florida. She was from Louisiana. She, you know, it would all fit in um, just those types of things. And I mean, some of the others, there were, um, they had a female victim and another one that said they didn't have any money for anything. And, and they, um, I mean, not victim su suspect, sorry. And they said they didn't have money for anything, but yet when they, uh, I looked at the bottom of their shoes, it was a very high end shoe that I knew. I said, well, if they don't have any money for anything, they're wearing $700 shoes. Um, where would they've gotten those? And they said, well, how do you know that? And I told them, I, I love fashion, not that I could <laughs> afford it, but I looked a lot. And I, so I told them, I said, this is what the shoe costs. Uh, and so for them telling you this, I said, we need to look, let's go look in the closet first. And then we can look for some other areas, but they're not telling the truth about that. So the chances are that they're lying about some other things. Do you believe that when it comes to the solving and investigation of crimes, yes, you have to be incredibly skilled and educated as, as you are in your area, but sometimes it's also really about logic, human nature, common sense. I mean, if it's not adding up, something's wrong. Absolutely. And that's, that's fabulous too. Like when people talk about, oh, is it a science? Is it a, this? It's almost giving that, you know, connotation that's like voodoo or something. And I said, no, it is not. It's common sense on steroids. And I think women overall 
pay more attention to little minute details than men do. I think it's just in our nature. And then also in the things that we do, right? So you take all of the things you mentioned, the common sense, power of observation, and then you look at a little details. And by that, something that's at the crime scene or something that isn't, or something that could have been removed. And I find all of those things are what adds up to the, the big piece of the puzzle. What would you say, and I know sometimes not the, the biggest case isn't always the one that is closest to your heart or the one that's the most important to you, but I, I am curious as to what's like the biggest case that you worked. Well, the biggest case for me um, was the Rogers case, and I'll quickly go through it, but the reason it was the biggest case, it's the only one that I had the opportunity to be involved with from the beginning. And I'm meaning um, when the mother and two daughters were fished out of the bay in Tampa, Florida, um, to the fact that they it went cold, the case went cold. And then about a year and a half later, they came to Quantico. I had moved from Quantico, I mean, from Tampa to Quantico. And so I was re-engaged with the case. Got to see that all the way through to the suspect and the suspect being executed. But the the reason that case haunts me and uh, lives with me is because I spent so much time on it and I called them by their names. Usually I made a conscious effort, uh, was was very disciplined in that way to, to go by a case number. So I didn't get emotionally uh, involved in it. They were you know, clinically detached. But this particular one, they were naive, I guess. And I mean that in a good sense, had not experienced much. We're so naive about human nature and going off with people and why would anybody even want to harm us, right? And then to see the brutal way in which they were killed um, just really sticks with me. Mm. And is there another one that touched your heart that was very personal to you? Oh, God, there's so many. Yeah. <laughs> uh, even though, like I said, I don't know their names. But um, what what lived with me is when you, you know, you'd see the pictures and then you read the victimology, right? So what were they about? What were their lives about? And typically... Um, Again, you'd see someone that was trusting, um, some that, that wasn't situationally aware, um, that really didn't pay attention to some of the details. And they were they were vulnerable. And that's one of the things I've always hated are bullies, people who take advantage of others. And they would be the consummate victim in their vulnerability and someone um, preyed on them. So Can we talk? Can we talk a little bit about serial killers? You know, every everyone's kind of fascinated by them. I That is my least um, favorite, if you can even use that term, of cases that I cover. The, I can pretty much stomach a lot of stuff, but I can't serial killers. And I think maybe it's because I can't understand them. They, they I get very anxious when I'm covering a serial killer case, if I'm, you know, in their home, anything like that, reviewing cases, uh, the documents, uh, listening to their videotaped interviews, what what kind of experiences or or what is it about the serial killer that just makes them just so frightening? Well, what I think it is, is again, they get the thrill, whatever it is, you know, the reason that they do, the, mo the motive for all of that, it's some kind of a thrill, it's an adrenaline pump, it's something that they really enjoy doing. And that's the other thing in our spectrum of normal. It's we can't understand that. And that was why, like I said, when I interviewed so many of these, I parked that at the door and try to elicit from them 
what they got out of it. Was it a joy or if they were so sociopathic, they wanted to feel something. Did they feel something when they were doing that? Or the fantasy, most of them had a really um, active fantasy life. So even like the case we were talking about, they would have in their own mind, these fantasy relationships with the victim that they selected and would kill them. And, and so many of them were involved in post-mortem activity. So that was their relationship. So I think you're right to say all of that's kind of creepy. Yeah. What would you say is the biggest misconception or myth when it comes to serial killers and serial killer reporting? Oh, I'd say one of the biggest myths, and I think that's being addressed somewhat, is that they're they're stupid or that they are, you know, they have some kind of a sign on their head or they're going to give off some kind of a creepy vibe so that you'll know who they are. And mm. why wouldn't you know about that? That's that's not uh, the majority at all. And unfortunately for quite a few of them, um, it, it's that they do appear normal by our standards and you wouldn't necessarily at first blush with them, get some kind of that little feeling to like stay away or, you know, run in the opposite direction. It's, it's not that pronounced. Oh, it's all so disturbing. Do you sleep well at night, Jana? <laughs> <laughs> well, after a glass of wine, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I think, um, I, it took me a while. It really took me a while to detach from some of that. Um, but I'm, I'm a strong believer in like, uh, physical exercise used to be running. Now it's walking, um, uh, but doing things and then intentionally, um, focusing on something else, because if I allowed it, it can consume you and it can, it can lead to some, some behavior. I did that for a little while, uh, that, you know, you're kind of going, well, now, why am I doing this? And even though I wasn't consciously thinking of it, I was subliminally. So to really, really erase it, erase it. By any chance are you, I, I realize you're retired out of the unit now, but um, by any chance, are there any cases or anything? Do you still work on things or how do you, I know this book was a big project for you. Yeah, yeah, the book was. Um, I'm not working uh, with, with the unit. I know some people do as contractors. Um, I am contracted uh, and worked on some cases, so I, I do that. And um, because it's still an interest of mine, I try to stay as engaged as possible. I wrote an article on the Gilco Beach murders uh, just a couple of months ago. Oh, great, great. Well, um, I, I have two cases that I you know, have never uh, been solved. I'm going to contact you personally, if I may. <laughs> Of course, of course. May I? <laughs> Here it'd I am my, putting you my on the honor. Yeah, <laughs> I would love it. You know, my honor, Anna. Yeah, I, I just think as reporters, we um, have cases where we meet people and families and it breaks our hearts that decades go by and the case is still not solved. And it's got to be you have to be able to solve it. I have to think you can solve everything. Maybe not yeah. in. Right. Do you have feel that oh, way? Absolutely. And, and that's why I, I um, enjoy doesn't sound right, but I'm, I'm kind of driven to work on some of the cold cases, because going back to what I said about details, little details, um, many times fresh eyes, they'll take a look at it and go, well, you know, who who wrote this or who did that? And the original investigators didn't go down that lane or, you know, somebody else would ask a question that they hadn't thought of that diversity of thought and experience. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, this has been such a pleasure, Jana. I don't know if we'll ever be so lucky to get you back on the podcast, but I, I hope that you do come back. This has just been oh, wonderful. You. Just thank just you. Great, great. And uh, I presume you can get the book wherever you get your books. Is there also an audio book version of it as yes. well? 
Yes, there is. Spotify has the audio version and then uh, amazon.com, bookshop.org. And I think any, any other place where books are sold, I've been fortunate to have them available. Oh, that's great. I do love audiobooks. I have to admit that's, that's my new. It's well, just... they are, they're great. And you can do that, you know, when you're doing something else. And um, to me, you can kind of stop it when you want. I, I, I hadn't tried audiobooks until about three years ago and I'm sold. Yeah, me too. Me too. I just love it, love it, love it. Um, and Jana, do you have a, a presence at all on social media where people can follow you if, for example, or a website, if you're publishing an article or you're you're doing commentary on any current cases? I'll give you a confusing answer. Yes and no. Uh, my <laughs> website went down. I hired someone to redo it and, and you know how technical problems are. Uh, yes. So it, hopefully it'll be up and running by um, Saturday. Oh, <laughs> and the website is once it's working. Um, we're changing that too. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's 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 been a, a poor timing thing. I'm sorry, Anna. <laughs> no, that's quite all right. That's quite all right. Well, um, you can find me Anna G News on all social media. Uh, as you know, sometimes I talk about everything but crime because that's how I keep myself sane. I do a lot of volunteer work for a purposeful rescue in Los Angeles, so. That's what I do with my time and my interests. I try to do the good things in the world to mitigate all of the bad that's out there. You can find this episode wherever you get your episodes. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, More Than 5 Million Strong. You know that I read your comments. Sign up to receive our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. So until next week, this is Anna Garcia, the host of True Crime Daily, the podcast. And as we always say, don't do crime.